Well, good morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of... Wrong! <laughs> to the book of Exodus. Where, uh, we have a, a, a one-week little uh, break here where we're going to be in the book of, of Exodus this week. And so... Um, I'm in, a, uh, I'm in a preaching course at Southern Seminary, and so uh, I, I've got five, five sermons that I'm going to be submitting before I graduate in, um, in December, by the grace of God, and, uh, and so I, I needed to preach any book between Genesis and, and Esther, and so I figured uh, Exodus is always good, and so it's a, a, a lot of good material. So uh, please turn your Bibles to the, to the book of, of Exodus, chapter 16. As you're turning there, I think of uh, a moment I had yesterday. I took, uh, after we had a preach team meeting in the morning, I, I took my wife and our eight kids to Whitewater. Now, if m many of you I know have been to Whitewater. If you don't know what Whitewater is, it's a, it's a, um, it's a little water park. And uh, it's, it's what we got here. It's not the best in the world, but it's what we got. So we go there. It's, it's meant, to, meant to be fun. It's, it's, it's meant to be exciting. It's meant to somewhat be relaxing. Not as relaxing if you have eight kids, but you get what I'm saying. It's supposed to be an enjoyable day. Especially if you're a little kid, right? Especially if you're a little child, like, the, you know, you love whitewater. You go there and you walk right in and you see these big towering slides. You, you go to the children's area and you see the water, like, you know, see, you see the water shooting everywhere and these, this big colorful little pirate ship and, and you see it and you're thinking like, this is it. Like, this is why I was created, to enjoy this moment. To, 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 to slide down this little four-foot slide and, and slide across the ground and just enjoy this all day long. There could be nothing better than enjoying this moment right now. And mom and dad are so gracious for taking us here. We're so grateful. I mean, this is awesome. You know, other kids are doing homework on Saturday. Other kids are having to do chores. But my mom and my dad, they're taking me to Whitewater. Which is exactly what happened, right? <laughs> now, I will say that most of my kids greatly enjoyed Whitewater. They did. And they were grateful, and they were to thank you, Mom and Dad, but there's one who wasn't having it. And I'm not going to tell you who they are. But there was one that weren't having it. Because it's like five minutes into our trip to Whitewater, they're melting down because they're hungry. And they're pitching a fit because they're hungry. I mean, we had just had breakfast, and I, and I assure you they had enough breakfast. And I assure you this, that they knew that come lunchtime, in just a few hours, they were going to have some lunch. Why? Because mom and dad are faithful to provide breakfast every morning and lunch every day, and even, if they're good, dinner every evening. And there was a point in which this one child was just pouting and pitching a fit, would not, would not go on the slides. They wanted to leave. 
I wanted to I want to go back home where there's no slides, where it's boring. I, I, I want to go back home where, and maybe just eat some fruit snacks. Because fruit snacks in this moment are much better than white water. Mom and dad, I know better than you. We've got to go. You're foolish for bringing me here. Now, we, we as growing adults and mature adults, we, we see this story and we understand that like, we're, we're just grateful that God and His sovereignty and His power has matured us so much as adults that we would never be like that, would we? We, we, we would never find ourselves in a situation experiencing just so much grace and so much love from the Lord that, that, that we would find ourselves complaining and grumbling and whining, would we? No, it, in fact, if there's one sin, if there's one sin that we as adults can't seem to shake, that we constantly struggle with, and I'm speaking to myself this morning, I'm speaking to all you guys. It's the sin of grumbling. The sin of complaining. There's never an instance in life that we experience that's just so good that causes us just never to grumble or never to complain again in our whole life. So this morning, as we gaze upon Exodus Chapter 16, we're going we're to talk about grumbling this morning. As we see the Israelites grumbling in, in the wilderness at God. In the midst of Him doing some amazing things among them. And what we're going to find is that we, it's easy for us to look at, it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and, and, and to act like, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they responded that way. What we're going to find is that we aren't any different than the Israelites. And the solution to their grumbling isn't any different than the solution to our grumbling. And, and my main point is this this morning. That when we're tempted to grumble, we must remember the faithfulness of God. When we're tempted to grumble, we must remember the faithfulness of God. We're going to talk about four main things this morning as, as, I, as I attempt to get through Exodus chapter 16, the, the whole chapter. It's a long story, so you, you'll, you'll need to bear with me. We're going to talk about first the heart of grumbling. What really is at the heart of grumbling? And number two, we're going to talk about the object of grumbling. Who or what are we actually grumbling at or to? Third, we're going to realize that, there's, that we don't just grumble, but there's actually fruit that comes along with grumbling, the fruit of, of a grumbling heart. And then fourth, we're going to talk about the solution to our grumbling hearts. And so, if you've made your way to Exodus chapter 16, I'm going to read, it's going to take a few minutes, I'm going to read, Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 36. Please follow along as I read. They set out from Elam 
And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew uh, lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall, eat, uh, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. It bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. 
Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came uh, to the border of the land of Canaan. May God bless the reading of his word. The first thing we're going to talk about this morning is the heart of grumbling. Point one, the, the heart of grumbling. And, and we see this in, in verses one through three. And, and the thing that I'd like to point out is this, that the, that the grumbling heart desires the wrong things and comes to the wrong conclusions. The grumbling heart, it, it desires the wrong things and it, and it comes to the wrong conclusions. First, the, the grumbling heart desires the wrong things. And for us to see this in the text, it, it requires that we um, understand a little bit of the context of what's happening here in Exodus chapter 16. I, I know sometimes it's difficult to just kind of hop right in the book, right in the middle of a story, and to try to understand what all is unfolding. But at the end of the book of, in the end of, the book of Genesis, we see um, God bring uh, the house of Jacob through Joseph into the land of Egypt, protecting them from the famine that was there. And then the book of uh, Exodus opens up and, and we see the Egyptians uh, greatly um, concerned about the people of Israel. They, are, they feel threatened by the people of Israel, so, that, so they're enslaving uh, the Israelites. And they put them under harsh labor, and so that they can keep them down because they're, they're afraid that one day the Israelites are going to uh, overthrow the people of Egypt, which would threaten their way of life, and et cetera, et cetera. We, we understand. We, we're very familiar with the story. But, but God in His promises, he, he comes to Moses and He, and he says, I'm going to deliver the Israelites from bondage. I'm going to deliver them from slavery. And so Moses, uh, by the power of the Lord, he, he goes and he speaks to Pharaoh and Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and, and says he's not going to let the people go. So the Lord puts uh, ten plagues over the, the Egyptians. U ultimately, we see the Lord fulfill his promise. He, he delivers his people from, uh, from slavery. He delivers them from, from the hand of Pharaoh. And so the, they're about to get to the, to the Red Sea. And, and then in the rearview mirror, they, they look back and, and they see maybe the Egyptians have changed their minds. So they're, they're coming to, you know attack the Israelites or kill them or, or bring them back into bondage. But, but God in His power, He parts the Red Sea. The Israelites part through the Red Sea. They walk them all the way over to dry land. And the Egyptians, they come and follow them. But God in His power, in His sovereignty, He kills them. He, he makes the waters just overtake the uh, Egyptians and, 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 and they're dead and they're across the, uh, the Red Sea. And, the, and then they have this famous song and in, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, it's the, the song of Moses where they're like, yes, the Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our Savior. Do you see what he just did? Do you see it? Do you, do you see that like what he just did? He had 10 plagues. 
I mean, he turned their water to blood. He brought locusts. He, he killed the firstborn of, of the Egyptians. Do you see what he did? Not only that, but look, we were there and we saw him coming in the rearview mirror and we had nowhere to go. We were trapped, but God in his sovereignty and God in his power, he parts the waters and we go and, and then he kills the Egyptians. Holy smokes. And then they say this in, in the Song of Moses. He's not just our salvation, but the Lord is a warrior. He's this mighty, sovereign warrior. I mean, they're praising him. They're, they're going hard. It's this whole long chapter, and then it's not long. They're traveling just a few days, and then all of a sudden they have no water to drink. So you know what they start doing? They start grumbling. But God... And his sovereignty in the midst of their, their grumbling, he provides water. And then it's not long till we get here to, to Exodus chapter 16. And it, and it says that it was basically two months and 15 days since they departed. Now, that doesn't sound that long as we're reading it, you know, but you think about two months ago, where were you? Two months ago, I guess we we're in the month of. July, uh, June. You can't remember that far back. You don't remember what you're doing. It's easy for us to forget, isn't it? It's easy for us to forget the faithfulness of God. Well, we can't remember hardly anything. We can't remember what we did yesterday. We can't remember what we have to do tomorrow. Our heart, we're, we're forgetful people. But in the midst of this whole story, in Exodus chapter 6, the Lord promised His people something through the prophet Moses, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God promised it. And he said, I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God did that, didn't he? It came to pass. It didn't stop there. He said, I will take you to be my people. Not just slaves to, to the Egyptians. But I'm going to take you to be my people. And I will be your God. Not the gods of the Egyptians that I just destroyed. That I just made a mockery of. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You, I, I am going to be your God and you're going to know it. I will, that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's going to work in such a way that you're going to be delivered and you're going to know that it was God that did it. Not other governments. Not just weird climate stuff happening. God's working in such a way that he knows that he, that you're going to know that it is he who works. That's the point. Then he says this, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's saying, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to take you from this land that I just cursed. I'm going to bring you into your own land. I'm going to bring you into your own land that, I, that, that I'm going to faithfully fulfill the promise that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. That was the promise that he gave to the Israelites. 
So in the midst of their bondage, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their, their slavery, God had given them a promise. And in the midst of this promise, the Lord does. He fulfills the first half of this promise. He brings them out of slavery with an outstretched hand. And He's bringing them toward the land of promise. Okay? And on the way there, we find here in, in, in Exodus 16, it wasn't long before we find them, them grumbling against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Life wasn't exactly meeting their expectations. You know, they, they saw that maybe God had promised something and God wasn't fulfilling it in exactly the way that they thought that He should be fulfilling it. They, they, you know, I know God had, had you know, promised this thing in the past. But the way that it looks to my eyes, it's not going to happen. Because we're running out of food. Now, I know there was a point in which I know there was a point in which we had no water and God provided water. I know there was a point in which God had no, that we had no hope, but God gave us hope. But in the moment, we're sitting here and we have no food. We're running out of food. We're not going to make it much longer. And so, rather than looking back to God's faithfulness, to the character of God, to His past provision, they grumble. And they complain. And they say this, Oh, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. I want us to understand the, the weight of what they're saying here. The weight of their grumbling here. The, the Israelites preferred in this moment because their bellies got a little hungry and because their, their real desires weren't being met, they said, we'd rather be like the Egyptians than the redeemed people of God. We'd rather be like the Egyptians. They, they seem to fare better because, you know, they've got pots of meat. They got pots of meat. And that just sounds good right now. I mean, I know God promised that He was going to redeem us. And I know God just obliterated these people and their gods. And I, and I know God has a future promise for us. And, and I know that, that, that God has done nothing but sustain us and be faithful to us. But I want some meat. I want a pot of meat. It's like Esau trading his birthright for a sandwich. They desire the wrong thing. Their heart's desire was to have their bellies full in the moment. To have their earthly, carnal needs met in that moment. And they were willing in that moment to forsake Forsake being the people of God, being His people of promise. Forsake the land. Forsake it all. So that they could have meat. Meat pots. And bread to the full. Instead of being the people of God. They desired the wrong 
things. They also come to the wrong conclusions. They said this, you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, when our, when our, when our desires aren't being met and we, and we grumble and we have, we have grumbling hearts, don't we come to the most drastic, dumb conclusions? I mean, don't we think the worst of people? Don't we think the worst of our situation? And like in the moment nights when, when, you're, when you're struggling and you're dealing with stress and anxiety and then you get woken up at 3 a.m. and all of a sudden like the worst possible scenario comes to your mind and you're just like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling at work right now. What if my business shuts down? What if I'm homeless? What if I'm homeless and I have to go I, I have to go to the grocery store and steal a piece of bread and I go to jail and my family never sees me? We start thinking this way, don't we? Like, it's just absolutely crazy. They're sitting here and God has been nothing but faithful. He's been nothing but faithful. And God is actually doing exactly what He said He would do the way He said He would do it. He delivered them and now He's sending them. But then in the midst when God isn't exactly working like they thought He should work, they're coming to the wrong conclusions. Well, God, because you're not working the way that I thought you should work. You know, in my perfect wisdom, in my opinion, because I don't have what I want right now, or, or what I think I need right now, God, you must be out to get us. You've brought us here to kill us. It would have just been better to die under judgment like the Egyptians. The grumbling heart desires the wrong things and comes to the wrong conclusions. Because their heart was not to be the people of God. Their heart was not for the Lord. Their heart was not to worship the one true God. Because if their heart really did desire the Lord... And if their heart really did desire to see His glory, they would see this. That God is always working things out in a way that He gets the most glory. You know what that involves? Him working things out in a way that you don't get the glory. That God works things out in a way that you don't see how point A is going to meet point B. But God's working it out in a way that says He's going to get the glory even when you don't understand. God is always working things out that way. How's God going to deliver us from Egypt? How's God going to deliver us from slavery? Well, God's going to turn water to blood. God's going to kill the firstborn. God's going to bring plagues. God's going to part the Red Sea. God's going to make dirty water clean. God can do it in a way that is going, to, is going to give Him the most glory. But also, second, that God is always working things out for the good of His people. Do you understand that, church? You might be dealing with some, some deep struggles right now. But if our heart's desire is for the Lord and for His glory and, and to know Him and, and, and to trust Him and to see Him, we're going to understand this, that we as His people, He is always working everything out for your good. 
God's glory and your good are not opposite ends of the spectrum if you are in Christ Jesus. You understand that? That every suffering that you experience is, 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 is intended for God's glory and your good. Every, every time that, that you're not getting exactly what you think you deserve and you're entitled to in life, it's because God is working in a way to, to satisfy that need in your heart. That, that, that thing that you desire so much and, and it's such an idol in your heart that God will satisfy your heart. Those moments where you're not thinking straight and you're like, I, I'm not getting what I want. You know what? If you are in Christ, it's not what you need. It's not. God gives you everything that you need. And so if you don't have it, you don't need it. You don't. And I don't. But those moments are, are when, when these things are, are, are revealed in our hearts and, and we grumble and, and we complain, what we're realizing is this, that we, we really don't trust God. Our heart's desire isn't really God and for Him to be glorified. Our heart's desire in that moment is for us to be glorified, for our comforts to be met, for us to be served, for us to be made much of. That is oftentimes the very heart of grumbling. Us, in our glory, in our comfort, not the glory of the Lord. When your heart is for the glory of the Lord and to see Him praised, you're not going to grumble. You know why? Because God is working everything together for His glory. Everything. God's working COVID-19 and mask mandates and vaccination um, uh, arguments together for His glory and for your good. He's doing it. God's doing it. Every problem that you see in this church, God is working all things together for His glory and for your good. You're hurting marriage. God is, is working all of it together for His glory and for your good. And if your heart and my heart desires to see God praised, then guess what? No matter the circumstance right now, we can celebrate and not grumble and not complain and not walk around with our tail between our legs. We can because God is good. Here's the thing. We, we, we've talked about the heart of grumbling. We also got to talk about the object of our grumbling. And we see this in, in verses 4 through 8. You know, they're, they're, they're talking and 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 and. The Lord makes a, a promise to Moses that he's going to rain down bread from heaven and, and that, he's going to, that he is going to provide for them and he's going to have this test for them to see if they will walk in his, his law or not. And so, so Moses and, and Aaron go, go to him and say, Hey, the Lord has heard your grumbling. He's heard it. But we need you to understand this, that you're not actually grumbling against us. You're not. You think you're grumbling towards, towards, towards us? You're actually grumbling towards God. You know, and when life gets hard and life isn't meeting our expectations and we don't have everything we want or we're not getting everything we want or we're dealing with a trial or struggling or whatever... We often convince ourselves of this. We, we convince ourselves that, that people are our problems. I'm not grumbling against God. I'm grumbling against sinful people. I, I, I'm not grumbling against God. I'm grumbling against my bad circumstance. Or whatever other problem it is. 
We convince ourselves, no, 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 no. I, I, I can still love God and trust God and still grumble and complain. And we all do it. But the, the reality is our problem isn't our circumstance. It's never our circumstance. We never grumble ever, 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 ever. We never grumble and complain truly because of our circumstance. We grumble and complain because we have a problem with God. That's our problem. Your problem isn't your spouse. Your problem isn't your job. Your problem isn't your boss. Your problem isn't your money. Your problem isn't your health. Your problem isn't any of this. When we grumble and complain, our problem, the object of our grumbling, is God. And when we grumble, we need to understand this, that grumbling, this is serious, that grumbling against God, hear this, grumbling against God is an attack against the holiness of God. Grumbling against God is an attack against the holiness of God. See, we take, we take grumbling and we take complaining and we just act like it's, an, it's a sin that, that, that God's okay with. No matter the, We ignore the fact, you know, Paul tells us to do all things without arguing and complaining in Philippians. And we, we take that as a suggestion. Well, that's a nice add-on to the Christian life. We act as if it's God's will that we walk through trials and we do so with an angry spirit, with a grumbling spirit, with a complaining spirit. Christian, that is not God's will for your life. It's not. God's will for your life and God's will for my life is not that we walk around as complainy, negative people, grumbling people. Do you see grumbling is part of the fruit of the Spirit? It's not. But you know what is patience? You know what is kindness? Goodness, self-control, faithfulness, love, not grumbling, and not complaining. But as we, but as we grumble, we grumble against God. As we do so, we, we're questioning His sovereignty. We're saying, God, I know better than you. I know better than you. I know that my, I deserve in this situation to have a better circumstance that I'm in. Or we question his faithfulness. God, I know you promised me something, but you're not going to bring it to pass. We question his love. God, I know your word says that you love me, but, but, but I don't think that you do. I think you've forgotten about me. We question his goodness. Maybe God's sovereign. Maybe God is sovereign in the moment, and God could help me in this moment, but, but, but God isn't good. He's either good and not sovereign, or, not, or, or He's sovereign but not good, because in the moment, my reality that I'm not getting exactly what I think I, I, I deserve and I need, there's no way that God could possibly be sovereign and good without my carnal desires being met. Maybe we question his worth. Maybe we understand this intellectually. We understand that God is working all things together for his glory and for our good. And we see that. And we intellectually know it. But in the moment, what we're saying is this. 
That, that God, I know that, that, that your word says that you are better than riches, that, 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 that you're worth more than everything in this world combined. I know the word says that, but in the moment I'm questioning that because I would rather have a sandwich or a pot of meat than to be your child. See this, friends. See the severity of grumbling and complaining. It is an attack against the holiness of God. And it is a sin that we all deal with. And it is a sin that we all must repent of. God is not satisfied with our grumbling. It is a great offense to God. But the reality is this, third point, is that, is that, is that our grumbling never, never just ends with grumbling, does it? Sometimes we lie to ourselves and think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I just grumble a little bit. But the reality is, there's a whole bunch of fruit that comes with a grumbling heart. Other sins that come with a grumbling heart. We see this, as in, we see this in verses 9 through 28. We see God here. He's, he, he, he initiates just, in the, midst of, in the midst of their grumbling, God demonstrates love, doesn't he? That God's, God's faithfulness and love and, and his provision is, is not dependent upon our faithfulness. God shows his love and his power, his loving kindness to his, to his people, and he works in spite of their unfaithfulness. He says, I'm going to provide meat in the evening, a lot of it. I'm going to provide bread in the morning. I mean, come on now, guys. That's a meal. The bread and meat diet. We got we got the we got you know paleo. We got you know we got the Daniel diet. I'm 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 all about the Exodus 16 diet. Meat at night, carbs in the morning, and like and all that we can eat. That's what I that's what I'm talking about right there. But God gives it to His people. His heart was for His people to know this. And his provision, and his sovereignty, and his power, working, working in ways that, that only he gets the glory. His heart was for his people, for them to know something. That he is the Lord, their God. More than he just wanted to provide food for them, more than he just wanted to nourish their, their physical bodies, he wanted them to know this, that he is the Lord. That's God's primary objective and goal for your life, is for you to see that He is Lord, that He is sovereign, and He is worthy to be praised. God is working all things together for His glory alone, not your glory, His glory. And God is faithful. And God did what He said He would do. He did. Guess what? At nighttime, meat fell from the sky. In the morning, manna. Manna on the ground. But see, grumblers, they don't just grumble. They weren't just grumbling. They start to take matters into their, their own hands, don't they? They, they go there and, and God said, listen, you don't need to leave, you don't need to leave the meat. Don't, don't, don't try and leave it. I'm going to provide for you daily because what I want for you is to, I want, for, I want you to trust me daily and to rely on me daily. To, to rely on me for everything in life, in every moment, in every circumstance. I want you just to rely on me and trust that I'm faithful. And I'm worth it. There's, many Israelites didn't. What we do is, is, is some of them save the food until morning. They're like, well, you know, listen, I live with a scarcity mentality. And so, I, I, you know, I, I don't exactly trust that, that God's going to do what he said he would do. 
I mean, I know he did it this morning, but is he really going to do it the next morning? Is he really going to provide this time? Uh, so they start to take, they take matters into their own hands. It, it's just complete disregard for the commandments of God. Complete disregard for the commandments of God. God gives them this, this Sabbath day commandment. He says, you know, I'm giving you this Sabbath day. I'm going to give you a double portion. On this day, you keep the meat, and the meat's not going to spoil. But the point of the Sabbath is for you to keep it holy unto the Lord. It's a day for His name, and it's a day for His worship. But yet we see some Israelites going out on that seventh day looking for what? Food. And in by doing so, they're robbing God of the worship that He is due. That's what they're doing. Oh, they can make their excuses. I'm hungry. They can, they can make their excuses. Well, again, I have my little scarcity mentality. No. You have a disregard for the commandments of God, and you're robbing God of the worship that He is due. It's not just grumbling. Grumbling leads to other sins as well. Our, our unrighteousness, it never just stops with grumbling. Don't, don't be confused, Christians. You think, I'm a pretty good person, I just grumble and complain a lot. It, our grumbling reveals other fruit as well. We don't just grumble about our neighbor. We don't just grumble about them. We gossip about them. We give them the silent treatment when they don't meet our expectations. Or we don't forgive them. We don't just, we don't just grumble about our spouse. We, we as husbands, we, we, we don't just grumble about them. We're actively harsh with them. Or wives, you don't respect your husbands. We don't just grumble about our job. It's like, oh, you know, I'm just a, you know, mad, mad. We badmouth our coworkers. We excuse our laziness. We, we don't just grumble about our church. We rebel against the elders. We stir up strife in secret. Perhaps maybe even we stop going to church altogether and rob Christ of the worship that He is due. Again, all of this reveals a God problem. Not a situation problem, not a circumstance problem. A God problem. Finally, we'll talk about the solution to our grumbling hearts. In verses 29 through 36, what do we do? What do we do with our grumbling hearts? What do we do when, when, we're, when we're so quick to grumble, when we're so quick to complain, when we're so quick to, to grumble to God? Brian, what do we, I, I hear you, man. I hear you. And, and I, I understand that, that, that grumbling is a sin. And I understand that, that, that complaining is a sin. I get it, Brian. But right now, I, I, I'm dealing with something that's heavy. I'm dealing with the loss of a child. I, 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 I'm really dealing with, with real deep emotional strife. I, I'm dealing with real problems that are just absolutely wrecking me inside. It's not even that just life isn't meeting my expectations. It's that I'm dealing with, with just a crisis of faith. I'm, dealing, I'm really struggling here. What do we do in that moment? Oftentimes, we think the idea is that we just don't worry, be happy. 
You know? Hakuna Matata. You know what that means? It means no worries for the rest of your days. That's what the world says. You know, just, you know, you need just to think positive thoughts, have good vibes. That's what you need to do. Just ignore it. You know, we, or we'll just, you know, we just got to speak positive things into existence. Name it and claim it. No? Or we say, you know, God closed this door. He must have a better door open for you. And, and in that, what we mean is that like, God closed this earthly, material, influential, comforting door. And over here, God has a better door for you that is far more comfortable, that is, that is far more wealthy, that is far... No. All of those are improper views of dealing with our grumbling. Improper ways of dealing with our grumbling. Yet God might close the door and He's got a better door open for you. God might close this door and He has a, a door for you to walk through that, that, that is stage 4 cancer. But in the midst of stage 4 cancer, you learn to lean on Christ like you've never leaned on Him before and to trust Christ like you've never trusted Him before. He might, he might put you through something in your marriage where, where again, y- y- you think that like there's an intimacy between a husband and spouse that can't be matched, but in the midst of the marriage, God comes in and He gives you intimacy and love and security and faithfulness that far outshines even the best marriage. That might be the better door. But in the moment, what do we do? We bring our hearts and our emotions to a holy God. We bring it. We bring it and we lay it before God. He hears us. Friends, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our trials, in the the midst of the things that we're dealing with, God hears us. He is sovereign. He knows all things. We come and, and we confess our anger to God. We just confess it. We, we confess our struggles. We've got to understand this though. There's a difference between grumbling and confession. There's a difference. You say, what's the difference, Brian? You see, grumbling accuses God. Confession acknowledges God. Grumbling to God is saying, you're not sovereign, you're not good, your plan's not good. You're bad. You're not worth it. You're not worthy. True confession acknowledges God. True confession is this. God, in this moment, I know my circumstances aren't what I want. But I know you're sovereign. And 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 I'm praying, God, that you would give me joy in the moment. God, God, I know in the moment my life doesn't feel fulfilling, but I know you are the one who can bring me comfort, and you are the one who can fulfill it. You're acknowledging before God your emotions and your sinfulness and your lack of trust, but you're acknowledging it before a holy God that can change your sinful, unfaithful heart. And you know what? He will do it. Don't, 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 do, the, don't do the whole Elsa thing. Conceal, don't feel. Don't, don't, don't do that. God sees your heart. Confess your lack of trust. Confess your anger. Confess your struggles. And pray that God would give you joy. That He would produce fruit in you. Most importantly, we do that 
Because as we confess our struggles to God, we were remembering His faithfulness. Which is what God was calling the Israelites to here at the end of Exodus with the manna. He said, take it. And I want you to take it over and I want it to be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The cure for their grumbling, complaining, sinful hearts when they did not trust God and life wasn't meeting their expectations was this. Remember the faithfulness of God. Friend, are you struggling today? Life isn't where you exactly want it. Remember the faithfulness of God. Your marriage isn't where you want it. Remember the faithfulness of God. Your job isn't where you want it. Remember the faithfulness of God. Your church isn't where you want it. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. Oh, God is so faithful in working all things together for His glory and for our good. He is faithful, church. He is. And, and, and for this group of Israelites and, and for the future generations of Israelites, they could look back to this jar of manna and see the faithfulness of God. And that's great. But let, dear friends, we have something far better. We don't look to a jar of manna that no longer exists. It's been depleted. Oh, friends, we look. We look to the bread of life. We look to the bread of life that God in His sovereignty, seeing a group of unfaithful humanity that could never, ever meet God's righteous demands, who would always remain faithless, who would always remain sinful. But yet from Genesis 3.16 onward, God promised that He would send one who would crush the seed of the serpent. To, to deliver us from evil and to redeem us from sin and to make us His children and to bring us into His kingdom. That God was faithful to bring it to pass. He did at great cost to Himself. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. And guess what? In His active obedience, He completely fulfilled the righteousness of God. And in His passive obedience, God put Him up on the cross. And He, and he took the punishment. God God's wrath that we deserved. And he was put into the grave. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven. And dear friends, he reigns. That is what we look forward to. That is what we look towards. That, above all else, above all else, points to the faithfulness of our God to bring his promises to pass. In the moment when we are struggling, in the moment where we're tempted to grumble, in the moment where we're tempted to complain, look to Christ and remember the faithfulness of our God. Amen.